0: This semester, we are studying, uh, in particular, the life of Christ, looking at Jesus through the lens of the parables that he taught and the miracles that he performed. There's a lot of ways that we could unfold and unpack Jesus' life. Um, There's four gospels that contain his story. Um, And one of the things that's remarkable to me, whenever I talk to people, they'll tell me sometimes, and this this is okay, this is why I'm here. They'll tell me, you know, I... I've, I've kind of heard the stories growing up, but I've actually never read the Bible myself. And actually, when I sat down to read the Bible, my, my mind's kind of like, it's been remarkable to encounter God himself through the pages. And what we find is that when we read God's word, not only are we reading God's word, but we also find that God's word is also reading us, that God is active through his word because it's by the power of his spirit that we ourselves learn who we are in light of God's presence and the reality of who he is. So, Tonight we're going to look at John chapter 2. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs. And so I think it was fitting that it'd be the first miracle that we study this semester. Here's God's word for us tonight. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight with your word before us, and we have sung these songs just a moment ago, it is well with my soul. And I know for some of us tonight, it's not well with our soul, that we're struggling, some of us are lonely, and we ask that by the power of your spirit, your word will be applied to our hearts. And that truly, as we understand who Jesus is, we'll be able to sing with great joy, as we just did a moment ago, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Give us eyes to see, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When my wife and I got married, uh, the lady who kind of helped organize the whole you know, wedding event and the kind of wedding coordinator said to my wife, she said, something will go wrong on the day of your wedding. It might be in the ceremony it might be in the reception just know something will go wrong and it's going to be okay you're going to still get married and everything's going to be all right and uh and and we'll deal with it and the wedding ceremony went off without a hitch we got married and the reception everything went great and we didn't have any concerns and i thought it's kind of funny like nothing went wrong until later we only found out like a little bit later that night and then as the week unfolded that the caterers had stolen a bunch of our gifts Like where the people, like they leave envelopes with cash and checks in them. And you know, you have that awkward moment where you're like, I know, like I don't expect gifts, but it's kind of weird where like your close family doesn't give anything, but you can't ask them that, you know? But we realized like it just got stolen. And the bridesmaids, their wallets got stolen by the catering company. And it was a whole fiasco. And we realized like she was right. Something went wrong (laughs) and it's okay. We got married. We didn't get the gifts, but you know what? God's still at work. Um, It's all right. Uh, We we jump into this story tonight, Jesus' first miracle uh, of something going wrong at a wedding, something not unfolding according to plan, and Jesus is there in a very ordinary moment in this very ordinary kind of event, and he does an extraordinary miracle, And I want to challenge you tonight that as we dive in and unpack this this miracle and understand the profundity for what's happening, you'll see that on the pages of history, Jesus is revealing a remarkable amount of information about who he is. He's disclosing his identity through this miracle. And it's why at the end of this story, it says the disciples, well, they believed in him. And that's my hope for us as well tonight, that this miracle of Jesus changing water to wine, proves that a whole new era has been ushered into history by Jesus' ministry and his life. And he gives us the power to believe and to understand who he is. So what we're going to do is we're going to unfold this. I want to just make three simple points. And we're going to move from the obvious to the little bit more complex and profound to understand who Jesus is. Here's the first thing I want you to see tonight. The first thing I want you to see tonight is just the simple reality that Jesus is a faithful provider. Jesus is a faithful provider. Jesus and his family are at this wedding along with his disciples. And you kind of think about just the ordinary casual reality of Jesus' life. Somebody on the day as they were planning their wedding sat down and thought about the guest list and thought, you know what, we should invite Jesus and his disciples and his mom and they should come to this wedding. And so they do. Here they are on the wedding list at the ceremony. But in Jesus' day, weddings were a little bit different than they are in, in, in our day. You see, the reception wasn't just something that happened like for a couple of hours after this ceremony and everybody went home. In Jesus' day, the reception would go on for days after the wedding, sometimes up to two weeks. It would be the most lavish party that could ever possibly be thrown in honor of this couple who just got married. And also in Jesus' day, it wasn't the bride and her family who was responsible for this event. It was the groom and his family who was responsible for putting on this party, for hosting this reception that would unfold for days at a time. This would be the point of pride as a family, hosting their friends, hosting the community, to come and enjoy the significance of this moment so when they run out of wine, not only is this incredibly embarrassing, I don't know if you've ever thrown a party and ran out of food, it's like, this is, this is awful. Actually, in this day and age, it could have opened the groom and his family up to legal ramifications from the bride's family because this had such significance that there were legal ramifications attached to when you got married and the way in which your family responded. And here, this wedding ceremony, they have run out of wine. And so Jesus' mother comes to him and she tells him that they've run out of wine. And Jesus instructs the servants to go get these stone water jars. We're told they hold 20 to 30 gallons. And if there's six of them, let's just do the math. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but it's like somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. Let's split the difference and say there's 150 gallons of wine that Jesus changes from water to wine so that the party can continue a massive quantity of wine that would have been needed for them to get through the rest of the, of the week or the two weeks or however long the ceremony is going on. And Jesus doesn't just provide this massive quantity so that the party can continue, but some have even speculated that maybe Jesus is doing this so that this couple, whenever they start their life together, will have some resource that they can actually go and sell and make some money so that they can be provided for as they start in these early years of their life marriage, Jesus is a faithful provider. And he's not just providing a, this massive quantity. Did you notice that he's providing the best of quality? Did you pick that up in verse 10? That whenever they go and they draw this wine and they bring it to the master of the, of the event and he doesn't know where it comes from, do you see his response in verse 10? He says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely than the poor wine. I don't know if that was a strategy to get people to go home, you know, like, hey, the party's running out, we'll give you the poor wine now. Or if they were hoping that maybe you've drank so much that you wouldn't even notice that the old switcheroo has happened, and now you're serving the cheap stuff, but nobody cares. In this scenario, he's blown away because this is the finest of quality that's been unfolded. Jesus is a faithful provider in this moment of need. Now, some of people, and depending on your tradition and where you're from, some people have had issue with feeling like, does this this, like minimize drinking in terms of scripture? And I want you to just understand this because we're gonna unfold it in a moment. In the Bible and in God's time, the giving of wine was seen as a sign of God's blessing. And the Bible never condones drunkenness. It's always condemned outright, but the blessing of wine was seen as the blessing of God himself. And so here comes Jesus just as a faithful provider. So let's just just pause right there as we're thinking about this story and you think about your life. What is it right now in your heart that you're thinking about? What is it in your life right now that you really realize you are dependent upon God to provide? That you, out of faith, really need the Lord to provide for you? Think about some of the simple verses that Jesus taught in his ministry. In John chapter 10, he says, I have come to give life and to give it in abundance. He said in Matthew chapter 6, do not wear yourself out worrying about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what what you'll wear. Do you know why? Because he says, your Father in heaven already knows what you need. He'll provide. He said in the Lord's prayer that we should pray. Well, he said, well, pray like this. Lord, give us today our daily bread. Provide for us what we need. And my question for you tonight, as you sit here, and you think about the, the, the anxiety that wells up in your heart, whether it's a sense of loneliness, whether it's a sense of fear, whether it's a sense of just uncertainty of what the future holds, have you paused and reflected on the reality that the Lord is one who faithfully provides time and time again for the needs of his people? He even goes so far as to tell us to test him to see if he's not faithful to provide. Jesus is a faithful provider, and we see it here in a very ordinary event where a family has failed to prepare properly for their wedding ceremony. Jesus follows through, and he provides for their needs. But here's the second thing that we see. Jesus doesn't just become a faithful provider for us, Jesus also brings the power of transformation. We're going to take this a step further, right? We see that he provides, he provides wine, they need it, but there's also something going on here. Jesus is bringing the power of transformation into the reality of my life and your life and into this couple in this area. A new era has dawned in all of history with this miracle that Jesus performs. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but anytime you read in God's word about a a wedding unfolding or a marriage that's happening, you should press pause and reflect on the significance of what's happening. Because the Bible opens in the book of Genesis with a wedding, Adam and Eve getting married, God saw Adam was alone and he says, this isn't good that Adam is alone. We need to make a helper for him. And very early in the opening pages of scripture, God gives Adam a wife. And at the very end of the, of God's word and revelation, the Bible closes with a wedding. The lamb of God, the bridegroom has come to redeem his people who are referred to as a bride. And while I understand that that feels kind of odd and feels kind of weird, time and time again, what you see through Scripture is that God has told us that he's created uh, marriages, husband and wife, to be an illustration of his love for his people. That in other words, there's no closer, more significant way that he can illustrate his love for his people than to say, I am like a husband to you, to my bride. That even when you're unfaithful, I will go and rescue you. Did you know there's an entire book in the Old Testament of the prophet Hosea that Hosea as a prophet was told, Hosea, go and marry a woman who will be unfaithful to you. Actually, what the Bible says is she's going to go and play the whore and you're going to go and rescue her. And you're going to go and bring her back and redeem her and bring her home because your life is going to be a living illustration of my love for my people who have wandered and who have strayed, and I will go and win them back. And so here we are, Jesus' first miracle happening where? At a wedding, happening at a marriage ceremony. I think this is why Jesus' response to his mom feels so, uh, what seems so weird all of a sudden now makes sense when she's like, hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine, and did you notice what he says to her in verse 4? It's almost like, don't bother me, right? He's like, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What Jesus is referring to is that his hour that comes is the time in which he goes to the cross where he dies and is buried and is resurrected for the redemption of his people. The time when Jesus says, my hour has come, is when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he sees Judas Iscariot coming to betray him and he says to his disciples, get up, let's go, my hour has come. And here in this wedding, when she says to him, they've run out of wine, and he says, my hour has not yet come, the reason why he says that is because he's seeing the scope of redemptive history in this moment. And that what he has come to do is to restore you and me and everybody who's broken in their sin to a right relationship with the Lord. And he says, my hour is not yet come, but I'm going to give you a sign. My hour's not yet come, but I'm going to give you a sign of what it's like when my hour's come. Here's what it's going to be like the party will continue. God's blessing will be bestowed once again. You will experience the favor of God upon your life where it feels like this is the way it's supposed to be. And that's why he transforms this water to wine. Because all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, the giving of wine was seen as the blessing of God. In other words, another way to say that, living life apart from God's blessing could be symbolized as living life apart, well, from having God's favor upon you, like being at a wedding ceremony where they've run out of wine. I was thinking about this. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but it's, it's worth thinking over. Uh, several years ago, I remember reading a, a story about a, an, an NBA superstar, and he was being interviewed After a game in which he had been ejected because of, well, he's ejected. He was not being nice that game. Uh, and so he gets ejected from this game. And the remarkable thing is, is that the season before, they had won the NBA championship. His team had won the NBA championship. He had been named the NBA Finals MVP. And for the first 10 years of his life, or for the first 10 years of his career, the question was going to be, will he ever win the NBA final? Will he ever prove himself to be worthy of that pinnacle of the greatest of all players? And here he'd finally won the NBA championship. He'd been named the NBA Finals MVP. The top of the top. The best of the best. And here's why the interviewer was asking him about getting ejected. Because in his first 10 years in the NBA, he was ejected one time in 10 seasons. And in that following season, five times within the following season, coming back from winning the NBA finals. And here was his response to why he was getting ejected from so many games. He says, it's just my emotions and my passion for the game. After winning that championship, I learned that much had not changed. I thought it would fill the void, but it didn't. And that's when I realized the only thing that matters is how much work you put into this game. Can I translate what that means? I thought that winning that championship and being named the MVP would finally be the blessing in my life that made my life worth living. And when I realized it wasn't, I doubled down on this game and I'm frustrated that it's continually disappointing. You can have everything this world offers. You can have all of your dreams come true, but without God's blessing on your life, I promise you it will only leave you empty and frustrated and the void in your soul will never be filled. I appreciate his honesty for reflecting on that reality. Jesus is coming into this moment and looking at this at this wedding ceremony in the lens of what I'm just describing to you and saying this whole scene right now of this party that should be a joyous occasion is like living life without God's blessing. Everything is in place. The party is here. They've gotten married and everything is The way it's supposed to be, except for it's not, because the blessing of God is not here, and so he transforms the water to wine. It's proof of what he's come to do, that when his hour finally does arrive, he goes to the cross, and he dies a death for you and for me, so that you and I might have life and experience the favor and the blessing of God. Jesus is the faithful provider. He's the one who's come to transform our lives and transform the world in which we live so that we can experience God's blessing. And here's the third thing for you to finally see in this passage, that Jesus is the ultimate purifier. Here's the last piece of this miracle. Here's what Jesus is wanting us to see of who he is in this moment as he changes water to wine, is that he is the one who's the ultimate purifier. Look back at God's word and look at verse 6. Do you notice what these stone water jars were there for? They were there for the Jewish rites of purification. These stone water jars were there so that you could wash yourself whenever you were going into worship so that you could be uh, counted worthy to stand in God's presence. Before I was at um, FAU, I served for seven years at campus minister at USF. And whenever I was at USF, they built a new student union. And part of that student union, uh, they wanted to put up a room, an interfaith room for prayer. Uh, and in that faith room, so that all the different people of different nationalities and different religious backgrounds can have a place of solace and solitude to go and to pray and to reflect. But in that place, they did something I kind of didn't really expect to do, was that they put in a hand-washing station and they put in a foot-washing station. Because consistently across every religion is a sense of, that you don't belong in the presence of the God whom you're coming to and somehow you need to be cleansed as you come into his presence. The Muslim faith requires washing before prayer. The Baha'i faith requires washing of your hands and your face before prayer. The Jewish teaching, as you can see here, requires washing of your hands before prayer. Why? Because there's a universal reality that whether you're religious or irreligious, there's some reality that there's something broken inside of me that somehow it needs to be cleansed and washed and healed and purified so that I can stand before God with a clean conscience. Some of you right here tonight are coming with the weight of sin bearing down on your soul and you don't know what to do with it. Can I encourage you to see what Jesus is offering for you and for me is something that water can never wash away. He's taken the water out of these stone jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification and he's transforming that water into a symbol of God's blessing. He says, fill the jars with water, and they fill them with water, and when they dip the water out, well, it's no longer water, it's wine. You could almost say that what Jesus has done is take those jars and say they are worthless for being purifying anymore. What you need is to see that I am the ultimate purifier who has come to take your sin and to take your guilt and to take your shame and to restore to you the very blessing of God. The weight of your sin, the sense of your shame, the reality of guilt can only be dealt with whenever you come to Christ and and lay that at his feet. And God's word says that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you from all unrighteousness and to cleanse you of your guilt. At the very end of John's gospel, in John chapter 20, John writes, and he says, out of all the miracles that he recorded, he says, these are recorded in this book, but there's so many more that could have been written down that the the books of the whole world couldn't contain them. But he says, these are written so that you might believe. And you see at the conclusion of this story that his disciples believed, that he's the faithful provider, that he's come to transform the world in which we live, where we can experience God's blessing, and he's finally come to be the ultimate purifier that we have longed for. Even though this miracle it's it's somewhat limited, not that many people saw it, the ones who did understood and believed. And the question I have for you is will you as well place your faith in Christ and believe that these words are true and they even apply for you? Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we do come. And we confess that we need your forgiveness. We need your grace. Uh, we need you to apply the truth of your word to the depth of our heart so that so that our sin has been cleansed and that we can stand before you in good standing because of what Christ has accomplished for us. God, will you do that for us tonight? We pray in Christ's name.